Section 26 of Volume 1A of the History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1A, Section 26. Chapter 4, Part 3. It was crime sufficient in an Englishman to be opulent or noble or powerful, and the policy of the king, concurring with the rapacity of foreign adventurers, produced almost a total revolution in the landed property of the kingdom. Ancient and honorable families were reduced to beggary. The nobles themselves were everywhere treated with ignominy and contempt and they had the mortification of seeing their castles and manors possessed by Normans of the meanest birth and lowest stations, and they found themselves carefully excluded from every road which led either to riches or preferment. As power naturally follows property, this revolution alone gave great security to the foreigners, but William, by the new institutions which he established, took also care to retain forever the military authority in those hands which had enabled him to subdue the kingdom. He introduced into England the feudal law, which he found established in France and Normandy, and which, during that age, was the foundation both of the stability and of the disorders in most of the monarchical governments of Europe. He divided all the lands of England, with very few exceptions besides the royal domain, into baronies, and he conferred these with the reservation of stated services and payments on the most considerable of his adventurers. These great barons, who held immediately of the crown, shared out a great part of their lands to other foreigners who were denominated knights or vassals, and who paid their lord the same duty and submission in peace and war which he himself owed to his sovereign. The whole kingdom contained about seven hundred chief tenants and sixty thousand two hundred and fifteen knights' fees, and as none of the native English were admitted into the first rank, the few who retained their landed property were glad to be received into the second, and under the protection of some powerful Norman to load themselves and their posterity with this grievous burden, for estates which they had received free from their ancestors. The small mixture of English which entered into this civil or military fabric, for it partook of both species, was so restrained by subordination under the foreigners that the Norman dominion seemed now to be fixed on the most durable basis, and to defy all the efforts of its enemies. The better to unite the parts of the government and to bind them into one system, which might serve both for defense against foreigners and for the support of domestic tranquillity, William reduced the ecclesiastical revenues under the same feudal law, and though he had courted the church on his invasion and accession, he now subjected it to services which the clergy regarded as a grievous slavery, and as totally unbefitting their profession. The bishops and abbots were obliged, when required, to furnish to the king during war a number of knights or military tenants proportioned to the extent of property possessed by each see or abbey, and they were liable, in case of failure, to the same penalties which were exacted from the laity. The Pope and the ecclesiastics exclaimed against this tyranny, as they called it, but the king's authority was so well established over the army, who held everything from his bounty, that superstition itself, even in that age when it was most prevalent, was constrained to bend under his superior influence. But as the great body of the clergy were still natives, the king had much reason to dread the effects of their resentment. 
he therefore used the precaution of expelling the english from all the considerable dignities and of advancing foreigners in their place the partiality of the confessor towards the normans had been so great that aided by their superior learning it had promoted them to many of the seas in england and even before the period of the conquest scarcely more than six or seven of the prelates were natives of the country but among these was stigand archbishop of canterbury a man who by his address and vigour by the greatness of his family and alliances by the extent of his possessions as well as by the dignity of his office and his authority among the english gave jealousy to the king though william had on his accession affronted this prelate by employing the archbishop of york to officiate at his consecration he was careful on other occasions to load him with honours and caresses and to avoid giving him farther offence till the opportunity should offer of effecting his final destruction the suppression of the late rebellions and the total subjection of the english made him hope that an attempt against stickin however violent would be covered by his great successes and be overlooked amidst the other important revolutions which affected so deeply the property and liberty of the kingdom yet notwithstanding those great advantages he did not think it safe to violate the reverence usually paid to the primate but under the cover of a new superstition which he was the great instrument of introducing into england the doctrine which exalted the papacy above all human power had gradually diffused itself from the city and court of rome and was during that age much more prevalent in the southern than in the northern kingdoms of europe pope alexander who had assisted william in his conquests naturally expected that the french and normans would import into england the same reverence for his sacred character with which they were impressed in their own country and would break the spiritual as well as civil independency of the saxons who had hitherto conducted their ecclesiastical government with an acknowledgment indeed of primacy in the see of rome but without much idea of its title to dominion or authority as soon therefore as the norman prince seemed fully established on the throne the pope dispatched ermenfloy bishop of sion as his legate into england and this prelate was the first that had ever appeared with that character in any part of the british islands the king though he was probably led by principle to pay the submission to rome determined as is usual to employ the incident as a means of serving his political purposes and of degrading those english prelates who were become obnoxious to him the legate submitted to become the instrument of his tyranny and thought that the more violent the exertion of power the more certainly did it confirm the authority of that court from which he derived his commission he summoned therefore a council of the prelates and abbots at winchester and being assisted by two cardinals peter and john he cited before him stigand archbishop of canterbury to answer for his conduct the primate was accused of three crimes the holding of the see of winchester together with that of canterbury the officiating in the pall of robert his predecessor and the having received his own pall from benedict nine who was afterwards deposed for simony and for intrusion into the papacy these crimes of stigand were mere pretenses since the first had been a practice not unusual in england and was never anywhere subjected to a higher penalty than a resignation of one of the sees the second was a pure ceremonial and as benedict was the only pope who then had officiated and his acts were never repealed all the prelates of the church especially those who lay at a distance were excusable for making their applications to him stiggins ruin however was resolved on and was prosecuted with great severity the legate degraded him from his dignity the king confiscated his estate and cast him into prison where he continued in poverty and want during the remainder of his life 
like rigor was exercised against the other English prelates. Algeric, bishop of Sealsey, and Angelmere of Elmhan, were disposed by the legate and imprisoned by the king. Many considerable abbots shared the same fate. Egelwyn, bishop of Durham, fled the kingdom. Woolstan of Worcester, a man of an inoffensive character, was the only English prelate that escaped this general prescription and remained in possession of his dignity. Aldred, bishop of York, who had set the crown on William's head, had died a little before of grief and vexation, and had left his malediction to that prince on account of the breach of his coronation oath and of the extreme tyranny with which he saw he was determined to treat his English subjects. It was a fixed maxim in this reign, as well as in some of the subsequent, that no native of the island should ever be advanced to any dignity, ecclesiastical, civil, or military. The king, therefore, upon Stigin's deposition, promoted Lanfranc, a Milanese monk, celebrated for his learning and piety, to the vacant see. This prelate was rigid in defending the prerogatives of his station, and after a long process before the pope, he obliged Thomas, a Norman monk who had been appointed to the see of York, to acknowledge the primacy of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Where ambition can be so happy as to cover its enterprises even to the person himself, under the appearance of principle, it is the most incurable and inflexible of all human passions. Hence Lenfranc's zeal in promoting the interests of the papacy by which he himself augmented his own authority was indefatigable, and met with proportionable success. The devoted attachment to Rome continually increased in England and being favored by the sentiments of the conquerors as well as by the monastic establishments formerly introduced by edred and by edgar it soon reached the same height at which it had during some time stood in france and italy it afterwards went much farther being favored by that very remote situation which had at first obstructed its progress and being less checked by knowledge and a liberal education which was still somewhat more common in the southern countries the prevalence of the superstitious spirit became dangerous to some of William's successors, and incommodious to most of them. But the arbitrary sway of this king over the English, and his extensive authority over the foreigners, kept him from feeling any immediate inconveniences from it. He retained the church in great subjection, as well as his lay subjects, and would allow none of whatever character to dispute his sovereign will and pleasure. He prohibited his subjects from acknowledging any one for Pope whom he himself had not previously received. He required that all the ecclesiastic canons voted in any synod should first be laid before him and be ratified by his authority. Even bulls or letters from Rome could not legally be produced till they received the same sanction. And none of his ministers or barons, whatever offenses they were guilty of, could be subjected to spiritual censures till he himself had given his consent to their excommunication. These regulations were worthy of a sovereign, and kept united the civil and ecclesiastical powers, which the principles introduced by this prince himself had an immediate tendency to separate. But the English had the cruel mortification to find that their king's authority however required or however extended, was all employed in their oppression, and that the scene of their subjection, attended with every circumstance of insult and indignity, was deliberately formed by the prince and wantonly prosecuted by his followers. William had even entertained the difficult project of totally abolishing the English language, and for that purpose he ordered that in all schools throughout the kingdom the youth should be instructed in the French tongue, a practice which was continued from custom till after the reign of Edward III, and was never indeed totally discontinued in England. The pleadings in the supreme courts of judicature were in French, 
The deeds were often drawn in the same language. The laws were composed in that idiom. No other tongue was used at court. It became the language of all fashionable company, and the English themselves, ashamed of their own country, affected to excel in that foreign dialect. From this attention of William, and from the extensive foreign dominions, long annexed to the crown of England, proceeded that mixture of French which is at present to be found in the English tongue, and which composes the greatest and best part of our language. But amidst these endeavours to depress the English language, the king, moved by the remonstrances of some of his prelates, and by the earnest desires of the people, restored a few of the laws of King Edward, which, though seemingly of no great importance towards the protection of general liberty, gave them extreme satisfaction, as a memorial of their ancient government, and an unusual mark of complacence in their imperious conquerors. The situation of the two great earls, Morcar and Edwin, became now very disagreeable. Though they had retained their allegiance during this general insurrection of their countrymen, they had not gained the king's confidence, and they found themselves exposed to the malignity of the courtiers, who envied them on account of their opulence and greatness, and at the same time involved them in that general contempt which they entertained for the English. Sensible that they had entirely lost their dignity, and could not even hope to remain long in safety, they determined, though too late, to share the same fate with their countrymen. When Edwin retired to his estate in the north, with a view of commencing an insurrection, Morcar took shelter in the Isle of Eli, with the brave Hereward, who, secured by the inaccessible situation of the place, still defended himself against the Normans. But this attempt served only to accelerate the ruin of the few English who had hitherto been able to preserve their rank or fortune during the past convulsions. William employed all his endeavors to subdue the Isle of Eli, and having surrounded it with flat-bottomed boats, and made a causeway through the morasses to the extent of two miles, he obliged the rebels to surrender at discretion. Hereward alone forced his way, sword in hand, through the enemy, and still continued his hostilities by sea against the Normans, till at last William, charmed with his bravery, received him into favor, and restored him to his estate. Morcar and Egelwyn, Bishop of Durham, who had joined the malcontents, were thrown into prison, and the latter soon after died in confinement. Edwin, attempting to make his escape into Scotland, was betrayed by some of his followers, and was killed by a party of Normans, to the great affliction of the English, and even to that of William, who paid a tribute of generous tears to the memory of this gallant and beautiful youth. The King of Scotland, in hopes of profiting by these convulsions, had fallen upon the northern countries, but on the approach of William he retired, and when the king entered into his country he was glad to make peace and to pay the usual homage to the English crown. To complete the king's prosperity, Edgar Atheling himself, despairing of success and weary of a fugitive life, submitted to his enemy, and receiving a decent pension for his subsistence, was permitted to live in England unmolested. But these acts of generosity toward the leaders were disgraced, as usual, by William's rigor against the inferior malcontents. He ordered the hands to be lopped off and the eyes to be put out of many of the prisoners whom he had taken in the Isle of Eli, and he dispersed them in that miserable condition throughout the country as monuments of his severity. The province of Maine in France had, by the will of Herbert, the last count, fallen under the dominion of William some years before his conquest of England. But the inhabitants, dissatisfied with the Norman government, and instigated by Fulk, Count of Anjou, who had some pretensions to the succession, now rose in rebellion and expelled the magistrates whom the king had placed over them. The full settlement of England afforded him leisure to punish this insult on his authority, 
but being unwilling to remove his Norman forces from this island, he carried over a considerable army composed almost entirely of English, and joining them to some troops levied in Normandy, he entered the revolted province. The English appeared ambitious of distinguishing themselves on this occasion, and of retrieving that character of valor which had long been national among them, but which their late easy subjection under the Normans had somewhat degraded and obscured. Perhaps, too, they hoped that by their zeal and activity they might recover the confidence of their sovereign, as their ancestors had formerly, by like means, gained the affections of Canute, and might conquer his inveterate prejudices in favor of his own countrymen. The king's military conduct, seconded by these brave troops, soon overcame all opposition in Maine. The inhabitants were obliged to submit, and the Count of Anjou relinquished his pretensions. But during these transactions the government of England was greatly disturbed, and that too by those very foreigners who owed everything to the king's bounty, and who were the sole object of his friendship and regard. The Norman barons who had engaged with their duke in the conquest of England were men of the most independent spirit, and though they obeyed their leader in the field, they would have regarded with disdain the richest acquisitions had they been required in turn to submit in their civil government to the arbitrary will of one man. But the imperious character of William, encouraged by his absolute dominion over the English, and often impelled by the necessity of his affairs, had prompted him to stretch his authority over the Normans themselves, beyond what the free genius of that victorious people could easily bear. The discontents were become general among those haughty nobles, and even Roger, Earl of Hereford, son and heir of Fitz Osborne, the king's chief favorite, was strongly infected with them. This nobleman, intending to marry his sister to Ralph de Goder, Earl of Norfolk, had thought it his duty to inform the king of his purpose, and to desire the royal consent. But meeting with a refusal, he proceeded nevertheless to complete the nuptials, and assembled all his friends and those of Goder to attend the solemnity. The two earls, disgusted by the denial of their request, and dreading William's resentment for their disobedience, here prepared measures for a revolt, and during the gaiety of the festival, while the company was heated with wine, they opened the design to their guests. They inveighed against the arbitrary conduct of the king, his tyranny over the English, whom they affected on this occasion to commiserate, his imperious behavior to his barons of the noblest birth, and his apparent intention of reducing the victors and the vanquished to a like ignominious servitude. Amidst their complaints, the indignity of submitting to a bastard was not forgotten, the certain prospect of success in a revolt, by the assistance of the Danes and the discontented English, was insisted on, and the whole company, inflamed with the same sentiments, and warmed by the jollity of the entertainment, entered by a solemn engagement into the design of shaking off the royal authority. Even Earl Waltheof, who was present, inconsiderably expressed his approbation of the conspiracy, and promised his concurrence toward its success. End of section 26 Recording by S. T. Macduff